0: Tuned in to Chaos to the Fly, a podcast for fans of the darkness and the supernatural by Greg Newbigin. If you'd like to reach out to provide feedback or say hello, send an email to info at chaostothefly.com. Or if you'd like to share an experience, send the details to stories at chaos to the and it might be included on future episodes. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? Hello Flies and welcome! to episode three of Chaos to the Fly. I'm your host, Greg Newbigin, as always. And this week we have a ripper of a show, at least in my opinion. So hopefully you like it. I did take in some of last week's feedback and apply it. And I think it's resulted in some better stuff. Plus I've got a really fantastically written uh, ghost story this week, so enjoy that. Uh, If you missed last week, last week we looked at some Japanese folklore with Kuchisake Onna, the slit-mouthed woman. We also looked at three different ghost stories because uh, they were a little bit shorter than usual. Uh, And I did a review of seasons one to three of Netflix's Castlevania. So if you missed it, definitely go back and check it out. Anyway, on with the show. (laughs) The Hekaton The Hecaton, the Hecaton of Greek mythology were three children born of the gods Uranos, otherwise known as Uranus, and Gaia, in other words, heaven and earth. It's interesting at this point to note that although all planets in our solar system are named after the romanized forms of these gods, only Uranus is named after the Greek counterpart, god of the sky. I guess Calus, or Celus, the Roman equivalent, isn't as interesting a name. Anyway, for those that are aware of Greek mythology, the children of Uranus and Gaia were known as the Titans, mighty beings that were the children of the gods, but not exactly of the same divine nature. The children of the Titans then became the Olympians. That said, the intricacies of the relationship between the Titans and the Olympians is well beyond the purview of this investigation. The hecaton though, they were themselves effectively Titans. However, given their significant differences to the Titans, they were not regarded as such. Of the 18 offspring of Uranus and Gaia, only 12 were true Titans. Of the remaining six, three were the one-eyed Cyclopes, and three were the hecaton So what exactly were they? And why did their legacy not hold as much sway as the titans to whom they share the same parentage? Especially given they helped the Olympians overthrow their siblings. Well, it comes down to the fact that they were so... different. Not only were they giants, each of the three had 50 heads and 100 arms. The name hecaton itself means 100-armed. Three brothers they were. Cotus, the Furious, Briarius, the Vigorous, and Gyges, the, uh, Big-Limbed. And history is not clear as to whether or not they were the firstborn of their divine parents, or the last. But where the stories do agree is in regards to the response of Uranus on their birth. He hated them, and imprisoned them deep within Gaia. Keep in mind that she is, indeed, Mother Earth herself. So in this way, he buried them deep underground but not before binding them prior. As a result, the three brothers suffered in grief for many years. Eventually, another of their brothers, the Titan Cronus, castrated and cast down Uranus, becoming the new ruler of the heavens. Upon doing so, he then freed his Titan siblings, but not the Hecaton-Kirae. Their mother, Gaia, had foretold that Cronus would be overthrown by his own child, and that specifically the reign of the Titans would later be overthrown by the Olympian Zeus, himself that very child of Cronus that would indeed end his reign, with the aid, specifically, of the hecaton When the time of the great war between the Titans and the Olympians came about, itself a long and sordid tale, the hecaton were indeed freed, and did take up arms against the Titans, not only helping in their imprisonment in Tartarus, but also in becoming their prison wardens, guarding the gates of Tartarus for time immemorial. Tartarus, it should be noted, is not necessarily the Greek version of Hell, but it is related to the underworld, which is, of course, known as Hades. It does perform some of the same tasks as the latter idea of Hell, however, serving as a place of punishment for the wicked, and a place of suffering for the Titans. It is where wicked souls go once their hearts have been judged, and was considered to be as far from Hades as the earth was from the heavens and Hades itself was the same distance from the earth. Want to know exactly how far that is? Well the ancient Greeks have got you there. An anvil dropped from the heavens would fall for nine days before it reached the earth and a further nine days before reaching Hades and of course by extrapolation a further nine days before reaching Tartarus. The Greek underworld is a complicated place, really. In fact, it is the place where all of the souls of the dead go upon passing, including aspects of both Heaven and Hell, and some other strange places in between. I should note, though, that although there is a lot of similarity between the Greek and Roman mythology, Greek mythology is far deeper, and precedes the Roman myth by a thousand years. For this reason, the Hekatonkire don't seem to have any equivalent in Roman myth. Lastly, let's look at some pop culture. Truth be told, while there were many references in myth and other ancient sources, such as the Iliad, the primary recent reference would have to be in Stephen Fry's Mythos, a great little book which is essentially a retelling of the old myths. It's a fascinating read, and in fact the place where I first heard of these awesome beasts. However, there are a few other references for the last few hundred to thousand years. There's a reference in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, for example, as well as in Cervantes' Don Quixote, John Milton's Paradise Lost, John Keats' Hyperion, and Byron's Don Juan. Lastly, it would of course be remiss of me to not mention Percy Jackson, a modern series for young readers that puts the Olympians in a modern setting. The fourth book in the series, The Battle of the Labyrinth, includes a reference to Briarius. I've not read any of these books so I can't comment, but I'm pretty sure they're quite good, as they do appear to be pretty popular. (coughs) This week's ghost story is called The Lake Burton Encounter and was shared with me by the user Aromatic Cedar from the Ghost Stories subreddit. Note, this is a superbly well-written story, and is read almost verbatim. I live in the northern half of Georgia, which to those who are unaware, is full of hill country and mountains. The Appalachian Trail starts in north Georgia, as do many of the tributaries that feed into our major rivers. About 100 years ago, as electricity became a more common fixture in American life, southern power companies began damming up rivers in northern Georgia to produce hydroelectric power. As the valleys filled with water, large reservoirs became permanent fixtures in the hills of Appalachia. Though most of the lakes engulfed previously uninhabited or sparsely inhabited land, a few were built at the expense of a small town or settlement. Such is the case with Lake Burton. The town of Burton, which was best described as a small collection of mountain settlements, was dissolved and sold to the Georgia Power Company in 1917 to build the Lake Burton Dam. As the floodgates closed, the small abandoned town of Burton, Georgia became swallowed up by the rising waters. This spooky concept of burying completely intact churches, graveyards, homes and stores, under hundreds of feet of water, conjures up some rather eerie imagery. Coupled with the looming mountains, the rainy climate, isolated atmosphere, and rich mountain culture of superstition and lore, such imagery has created a slew of legends around the lake. People have dived down with scuba gear and seen the town, some might say. At night, the people buried below the lake walk straight out of the water. On full moons, when the lake is low enough, a church steeple rises at the centre of the lake, and a surreal fog covers the reservoir. These legends and stories are just that, the conjurings of a mountain culture rife with superstitious predispositions. However, given my experiences at the lake, I can no longer write off all of Burton's lore with the brevity and assurance that I once did. Although I save experiences, it was really just one experience. A very real, very startling experience, but a single experience nonetheless. My aunt and uncle own a cabin on Lake Burton. Unlike most other lakes in Georgia, Lake Burton was built over 40 years before Atlanta's primary water source, Lake Sydney Lanier. As a much older lake, some of the houses on Burton follow a similar pattern of age. My aunt and uncle's cabin was probably built in the 1940s or 1950s. Consequently, it is small, simple and quaint. My uncle, a home builder by trade, renovated and added to the house many years ago. But the pine walls and antique fixtures of the interior remained. Low lighting, wooden floors, the creak an endearing amount, board and batten exterior walls painted a Georgia red, green shutters, etc. A classic, cosy cabin on a mountain lake. It's important for me to preface that even at the time, myself being in seventh grade, I never found the house scary or creepy. It had a warmness to it, a feature juxtaposed well to the often damp, grey conditions outside. The lake itself was a little different. It wasn't spooky in a startling way. Rather, its eeriness is very subtle and natural. For example, it always seemed to be rainy or cloudy when we visited the cabin. This, coupled with the mountain light effect, that is to say that being surrounded by steep mountains makes sunrises later and sundowns sooner, created a slightly dimmer environment. The water, which was always crystal clear, was naturally cold all year round. In the mornings until midday, fog would roll across the water like spectral clouds skimming the surface. Most of the docks were made from old green wood fastened straight into the earth below the waterline. The often flat water reflected the steep hills that surrounded the house, and it almost looked as if the exposed rock faces and towering hills were about to swallow the lake up into the earth. That's Lake Burton, a very natural, grey place where beauty and quiet eeriness coexist quite well. To understand this story a little better, one must be somewhat familiar with the layout of the house. As most houses built into the side of a hill, the cabin has an upstairs entrance and a downstairs entrance. Both floors are in one way at ground level. The upstairs part of the house is the common area. Being on the smaller side, the cabin's living area gives way to the dining area, which gives way to a small kitchen. These three areas are located in one big room, with no doors or walls between them. In fact, the only separate rooms upstairs are the small bathroom and the upstairs master bedroom. The living area looks out onto a big wooden porch, which in turn looks out over the small backyard and lake. Just inside the upstairs entrance lies a very narrow set of downward leading wooden stairs. At the base of these stairs, there's a bedroom to the left, a common area to the right, and around the corner of the common area lies another bedroom. Across from this final bedroom, facing the lake, stands another exterior door, that leads into the backyard from the porch. This door seldom gets used, as the entire basement is used solely for sleeping. Very little conversing or visiting ever takes place down there. The story begins with a long drive from a house north to the hills of the Blue Ridge. The ride is always beautiful, never in a vibrant or exotic manner, but in a mystic, grey, mountainous way. You wind through grassy hills and pastures, through winding river roads and streams, through valleys and ridges and mountainsides, all the time feeling further and further from city life. Isolation grows as the ride continues. Nature gets more influential on the landscape. The road is forced to wind about and twist around the hills. Trees loom over the one-lane road until, out of nowhere, a huge lake appears to your right-hand side. Lake Burton. You drive for a few more minutes down a few one-way winding streets until a grey gravel path delivers you right at the front of my aunt and uncle's cabin. Being in middle school at the time, I was eager to explore, swim, fish, jump off the dock, boat, tube, and so on. We unpacked the car in haste, fearing the grey skies would make good on their threat of rain. The mountain grass and stone path down to the water was always damp and slippery, as the sun seldom had enough time to do its job of drying the wet mountain climate. This particular trip was different than previous ones. In the past, my aunt and uncle had accompanied us to the lake, making for a house full of family to enjoy the isolation and beauty of the area. However, my aunt and uncle this time decided to give my parents a single brass house key for a three day weekend. And so it was just the four of us, my father, my younger brother, my mother and myself. I remember having to unpack more of the car than usual as my mother was virtually immobile from a foot surgery she had undergone the previous week. We bought coolers of food and drink, fishing gear, clothes and the like. It was looking like three days well spent in a stunning part of our home state. We settled in that evening, enjoying the cool water and boat before the afternoon rain set in. I remember quite vividly heading to the dock that night in the pitch blackness of night as my father cooked burgers on the back porch. As I was trying to fish for catfish with some hot dog pieces and a mag light, I was unsurprisingly unsuccessful. I don't remember much about the next day or two as the evening rain dragged on through the remainder of our stay. Given the size of the house, we probably went into town to explore and shop around to return later in the evening for a home-cooked mountain dinner. My mum would cook in the vintage kitchen while my father stood pressed against the wall on the porch, trying to stay under the roofline and out of the rain as he grilled. I can't remember what we had for dinner that night, but I do remember my dad falling very ill over whatever we ate. He disappeared into the upstairs master bedroom before it was even dark out. Me and my mother and brother stayed up listening to the pounding rain, watching some older movie on the tiny corner television. I recall thinking to myself that I was getting to stay up late for my age, and dreaded getting up the next morning to pack and leave. We all generally enjoyed the house and lake. It was a pleasant escape from the rest of the world. As we grew wearier, we all departed to our rooms. First, my brother, who went downstairs to the bedroom furthest from the stairs. Then my mother, accompanying my now-snoring father in the upstairs master bedroom. She struggled through the house with her broken foot on a surgical scooter she'd rented from the hospital. Finally, I retired to my room at the bottom of the old pine stairs. The room was three sides concrete wall, with an ancient dresser replacing a closet, and an enormous bed with a heavy red comforter. Though muffled by the concrete walls, I could still hear the steady mountain rain tapping at the small window at the top of the far wall. I crawled in bed after leaving my door halfway open, a little light creeping in from some dim light in the common area, and I drifted off to sleep. Something woke me in the middle of the night. I turned sleepily to the bright red numbers on the alarm clock. It was 2.43. I always hated waking up in the middle of the night as I found it difficult to fall back asleep in unfamiliar places. However, this night I didn't really have any such problem. Just as my eyes were closing once more, it occurred to me what had woken me up. I heard my father coming down the noisy wooden stairs. The sound stopped as he reached the carpeted basement floor. I saw his silhouette fill my doorway. No features or details to speak of in the absence of light. And then he continued around the corner into the common area. I heard the door across the basement open to the sound of a clicking lock and the definite sound of mountain rain outside. Then, the basement's accompanying screen door slammed shut. I thought it pretty odd that my dad would come downstairs to go outside, as his room was upstairs, and that basement door seldom got used. In fact, cobwebs had actually covered the door when I'd looked at it the day before. Exhausted from the day, I drifted off back to sleep. As I arose the next morning, the rain had let up and left behind a grey, wet world for us to leave from. When I got upstairs, my mother was cooking breakfast in the kitchen, foot resting on her hospital scooter. We talked a little and exchanged good mornings. She asked me what I wanted for breakfast and I responded with my order, then she asked how I slept. I told her I slept fairly well considering it wasn't even my real bed, and that I only woke up once. Then the peculiar incident of my father coming downstairs popped back into my mind. My father was still asleep in the room, exhausted from his sickness the previous day. Mum, why did Dad go out the basement door late last night? I remember asking my mother. She barely looked up from what she was cooking and responded, Oh honey, Dad hasn't been up since his head hit the pillow last night. He was exhausted yesterday. This puzzled me as I so vividly remembered him or someone coming downstairs and peering into my room. However, I trusted my mother's words. She usually woke up if my father did, as she's a fairly light sleeper. Also, it was unlike my father to wake up at odd hours, especially if he was tired enough to snore so loudly. I asked if she had perhaps come downstairs and peered into my room, just shy of three o'clock. Of course not, dear, she stated, just as disinterested as before. You know I can't navigate stairs with this foot, she gestured to the huge cast wrapped around her leg. Although the figure silhouetted in the doorway looked like a grown man to me, I figured my little brother could somehow be the culprit. However, as he arose from his slumber to the smell of bacon cooking in the kitchen, he denied waking up at all the night before. Plus, he had no business going up the stairs at that hour in the first place, and opening the basement door seemed far-fetched as well. My family laughed it off, including myself, as an eerie dream conjured up by the setting we found ourselves in. As my dad arose and the night before faded into obscurity, We started packing up our stuff. I never could shake the feeling that something was definitely awry. Around 11 o'clock, with the grey skies looming and the truck fully loaded, we did one last walkthrough of the house to make sure we hadn't left anything. On finding nothing, it was time to lock up the cabin and head back home. Here's where the story takes a turn. My Uncle John gave my Dad a single house key for the cabin. It unlocks every door in the house, the upstairs door, the porch door, and even the old exterior door in the basement. It's common practice to leave the key in the handle of the porch door, as it's easy to keep track of and see. Upon inspection, the key was missing from its usual location. We scurried around the cabin, nerves frayed from a rainy weekend in the limited space, looking for the little key. We dug through bags, checked drawers and pockets, table sides and dresses. Finally, an eerie thought came to mind. The basement door had been opened in what I assumed was a dream, certainly. There was no way the key was actually down there in the door. I raced down the stairs, around the corner, and there, in the black lock of the old door, was a brass house key. I pulled it out and scurried upstairs, showing my parents with unease. Every family member began to ask me about what I recalled from the night before. I remembered waking up, the rain still steady outside. I remember looking at the clock. Then, something or something with little regard for waking me up came down the stairs and peered right into my room. I tried so hard to recall the silhouette, but all I remember was its general shape. It was obviously a grown man, but I could tell little else. Said man, or thing, then moved to the other side of the basement where it unlocked the seldom travelled basement door with a key it took from upstairs, opened the main door, and slammed the screen door as it walked out into the blackness of the night. It left the main door ever so slightly ajar as it vanished into the rain, a fact I noticed as I grabbed the key the next morning. Then something chilling occurred to me. The noise that woke me up was feet unabashedly hitting the narrow wooden staircase, however it wasn't just any feet. They were wearing shoes. Now this is a subtle but very definite detail, and it's what dispels in my mind any notion that I had a family member sleepwalk, which was a common response that I get when retelling this story. No one in my family has ever sleepwalked before or since that night. No one in my family wears any sort of shoe to bed, and to lace up shoes to walk around the house at night makes no sense. I often get the rebuttal that maybe my father drowsily wandered down the stairs in an isolated case of sleepwalking. To that I respond with this. How is it that a man who has never sleepwalked in his entire life not only does this this one time, but he also retains the mental capacity to put what sounds like hard-soled shoes on? Find the keys upstairs, come downstairs, unlock the basement door, and have no memory of it whatsoever. Also, how does that explain whatever came through the house leaving through the basement, never to walk back through the house or up the stairs again? This scenario justifies logic in my opinion. I don't know what that thing was or where it came from. No one has reported anything similar from the house since. My family hasn't been back for reasons not pertaining to the story, but I have a feeling I would have trouble falling asleep on a rainy night at Lake Burton. Another eerie fact, and one I seldom mention when telling this story, ties back into one of the previously dispelled legends, that spectres rise from the lake at night wandering the shores. If one looks out that basement door, there is a stone path that leads straight from the door to the edge of the lake, where a set of stone steps from a bygone era step down into the frigid water. I've always been sceptical of mountain lore. But the image of a mountain man's spirit, from some forgotten era, rising from the lake in the dead of a rainy night, only to wander around a cabin and return to the depths and darkness of the inconceivable and bone-chilling, haunts me to this day. This week's review is a review of Clive Barker's novel The Scarlet Gospels. Before I begin, I should probably preface this with a little disclaimer saying two things. First, the Hellraiser series includes some of my favourite horror movies. I'm a big fan of one through four and the world building that they try to do therein. And secondly, Clive Barker is also one of my favourite writers. Sure, I love the Hellbound Heart the novella upon which the first Hellraiser movie was based, but some of his works, such as Cabal, Imagica, and Weaveworld to name a few, are some of the most mind-bending fantasy horror experiences you'll come across. Seriously, read them. I know I've said this before, and don't think I won't say it again. I've been following Barker's path for a while, and watched as he looked to reboot the Hellraiser series, which seems to have possibly fallen over. At least he doesn't seem to be involved with the reboot any longer, as far as I can tell. I'll still watch it because I'm a sucker. Anyway, when I learned that he was looking to tell the story of Pinhead and perhaps even finish that story, I was hooked, if you'll pardon the extremely deliberate pun. The book itself is... Well, it's not exactly what I was expecting. But who knows what I was expecting, really. I didn't know what to expect. I guess the character of Pinhead in the movies had become something that I loved, and I associated both an aesthetic and an attitude to him that made sense to me. Being his character, though, Clive Barker had different plans for Pinhead. In fact, it's safe to say that he didn't really like the name Pinhead at all, referring to the demon as the Hell Priest throughout the book, and using the name Pinhead only to infuriate the character. The story basically redacts all of the backstory that's built into the movie series, anything from Hellraiser 2 onward, and that's inclusive of Hellraiser 2, I should be clear. So this is really a sequel of sorts to the Hellbound Heart. It's kind of strange, really. Barker has acted as consultant on many of the movies and comic book series that came since the original movie, so it's almost like he perhaps felt as if he'd lost control of the character as others got involved. And maybe he wanted to tear it back to its roots. This makes sense, of course, as the Hell Priest is, of course, Barker's creation, so he can do with it whatever the hell he wants. But I kind of like the pinhead that the movies had created, and the Scarlet Gospels has very little in common with the Hellbound Heart, beyond the Hell Priest himself, of course. But if you can put all of that aside, there is a rollicking good tale to be told in this novel. Not only does it include the popular Barker character, the Hell Priest, <coughs> pinhead, <coughs> but it also includes Harry Damore, a detective of sorts specializing in cases of the occult. He's turned up in a number of Barker stories, from short stories in his books of blood through Everville and The Great and Secret Show. The book tells of the Hell Priest's great plan and Harry's unwitting involvement in it, culminating in a trip into hell itself. It's action-packed, irreverent, and full of blood and guts, as Barker fans would likely expect. Plus, there are some massive scenes. I really don't want to spoil anything. Overall, it's a good book. It's a satisfying book, but not without moments that had me thinking, why the hell did he do that? I'm glad I read the novel. In fact, for fans of the Hellraiser series, it's pretty much a must-read but I'll continue to hold two versions of the demon in my head. The movie and comic book incarnations of Pinhead, his wacky crew and the Leviathan, and the novel version of the Hell Priest. To be honest, I think Barker just wanted to put the character bed, and if that is the case, he's done a very good job of it. Okay, and that was this week's episode lots of really really good stuff not that every other episode hasn't been full of good stuff come on let's admit it uh why did i choose this week's content so starting up front with the hecaton cure ever since i heard that name hecaton cure i've always just thought it was cool because it sounds cool it is a cool word and like i said in the uh discussion I learned about that from Stephen Fry's book Mythos, uh, which is really, really, really cool. I know I said it, but I'm saying it again. Uh, so check it out. And those, those, I had never heard of them before. hundred arms, 50, that uh, uh, 50 heads. I just thought the sound of them is horrific and there's no real record of them throughout history, apart from this Greek mythology. So I thought it would be cool to cover them. This week's ghost story speaks for itself. It was light on frights, I suppose you would say, but really, really deep on imagery. And that's what I loved about this one. Now, of course, not everyone is expected to be able to write to that kind of quality. And the reality is I can't convert everything that comes into me into that kind of quality. So it is a rare treat to have something like that. But, of course, it is balanced by other stories just being scarier or having a lot more scary content in it. But, uh, yeah, that was an absolutely fantastic story and I had to choose that one this week because I was enamored by it, basically. And lastly, the review of Clive Barker's Scarlet Gospels. I felt I had to do this one sooner rather than later, because I mentioned Hellraiser on last week's episode, so I thought, stuff it, I will go straight to it, get it out of the way, and cover off my Hellraiser fanboyisms as soon as possible, get it all out of the way. Uh, Obviously, I'm a big, big fan of Hellraiser for various reasons, mostly nostalgic, but I still love it. There's plenty of horror movies that have come out recently that are amazing. I did stop watching horror movies for, God, a good... 10 to 20 years. Around the time after The Grudge came out in Japan, I stopped watching them. I don't know why. I started to feel like I was getting more scared than I used to. uh, And I just couldn't handle them. Now I can handle them again, which is great. So I'm watching the shit out of them. There's a lot of great things I've caught up with over the last 10 years. So what I might do is some of the older stuff, you know, 10 years and older, five years and older, we'll see. Uh, I'll probably cover that separately here and there in these outros, just uh, talk about some of the older movies that I've seen, because I think reviews of newer content is probably better, but please do let me know by hitting me up at info at chaos to the fly.com. And letting me know what you think I should cover. I have got a few good emails. I've got a couple of reviews. So thank you to those people. One of whom is me. Yes. I reviewed my own podcast and gave it five stars. You know why? Because it deserves it. Uh, but also because I was on my wi- I thought I was on my wife's account. And it was going to be all anonymous and such. Wasn't. But I'm just leaving it there. Because hey. Such is life. And I think it's a great podcast. And so does my mum. Anyway. <laughs> What is my little secret about this week? It's not really a secret, it's my first memory. So if I go back through the analogues of time, deep into the psyche of Greg, to see you know, a, a formative experience, the first thing I can really remember is, so just to, to explain, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, all the way back in 1978, In around 1981-ish, my family moved up north Queensland to Townsville and we lived there for two years, I think it was, uh, when I was between three and five years of age. I don't know the exact dates because, hey, I was three and five years of age. Anyway, while we were living in Queensland, I have some early memories. They're really the earliest I can have. I I can kind of remember mild snippets of memories from before that time, but not much. Mostly what I remember is two experiences up in far north Queensland. One was being bitten on the back by one of my friends. So I got into a fight or an argument with another four or five year old friend, probably just out the front of my house. And a little bastard bit me on the back uh, with his teeth, of course. And I cried a lot and I went home crying because he bit me on the back. Don't remember why. Don't even remember who it was. It was someone that lived in the area. (sighs) What can you do? Kids will be kids. The other memory I have is of fruit spiders. I don't know if this is a real memory or if it is something that my psyche has inserted into my memory, but I have some kind of memory of climbing the back fence out the back of the house and seeing a giant tarantula-like spider on the fence beside me and being told that it was a fruit spider. Was it really? I don't know. Was it really there? I don't know! I don't know, but it makes for a good story. Anyway, those are my stories for this week. And I have to think of something for next week. It gets increasingly harder. I've had an interesting life, but there's certain things I just don't want to share on podcasts, podcast. You know what I mean? Know what I'm saying? Hey. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm at now. So that was the end of, I think it's episode three. Feels like episode three. Yes, it's episode three. I'm a little bit um, sniffly and Gravelly and all that kind of stuff this week. I don't think it's the Rona. Don't stress. I think I'm okay. But yeah, if my voice is a bit gravelly, that's why. I don't think it was gravelly when I recorded the other stuff because that was a couple of days ago. But eh, whatevs. Thanks for listening to episode three. If you'd like to, please share with other people that you think would be interested in listening to some horror content. Um, review, review, review. I appreciate reviews so very much because. It spreads the word, and this really, really is a difficult, difficult genre for me to have chosen. Highly competitive. Any help you can give me to help spread the word would be absolutely fantastic. Of course, follow me on Twitter at Chaos to the Fly. Head on over to Facebook. I believe it's Chaos to the Fly pod on Facebook, but if you just type in Chaos to the Fly, you'll find it as well. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you next week. I hope. Fingers crossed. See you then. Episode four. Booyah. I'm out. Chaos to the Fly might mostly be my little project, but it couldn't be what it is without the help of some key individuals and resources. So I'd like to thank the following. Thanks to Simon Exley for his brilliant music-making skills, providing all music used in the show. You can look for his work at inexilerecords.bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Mr. Mr. Yarn for his glorious voice work, which you can hear in the intro and outro. You can find him at Disco Underscore Box on Twitter. And last but not least, thank you to Simon Sherry, who provided the excellent artwork for the show, including our spooky mascot. Follow Simon at Simon Sherry on Twitter. Before I go, however, I should mention that the sound effects were obtained from Zapsplat.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at MadCapsules on Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of Chaos to the Fly. It would really help if you could leave us a review on iTunes or simply share the podcast with others you feel may be interested. To keep this spooky conversation going, follow us at Chaos to the Fly on Twitter and Facebook. Back to work, flies.